namotasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namotasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namotasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasam First, I'd like to uh, say thank you and, uh, well, express our gratitude to all of you who have been working so hard today, uh, uh, all day, actually, some of you, uh, this morning in the kitchen and, uh, and then this afternoon uh, as well uh, down at the lake. I think I didn't speak to Penny before she left, but I expect she's very happy with all the work that was done. There's uh, um, those of you that enjoy trees and lakes and wildflowers and and can see the potential that there is down there and maybe uh, can also feel excited about what's developing, what's growing and and it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to see it um, unfolding and and yet on the other hand it takes a lot of work um, to, to get it there. Well like anything really um, takes a lot of work to, to get there so we're very grateful uh, that you want to be a part of helping this project come alive. And so, uh, I, I had a look at a good number of the trees down there, and and looking around, I think um, I think we all agree it's been so far very successful. Uh, the planting of the hedgerow and and all the other trees, Hudson tomatoes, aspen grove, and so on. It's all uh, we've had a very good success rate, and it's received a lot of good quality attention and uh, just for your information the uh, in case you haven't heard uh, the uh, project for the boardwalk and the the cooties is well on its way Tan uh, Ario has been developing patience and determination and focus and and I think the result is going to be very successful we're expecting the boardwalk workers hopefully this coming week uh, they're only waiting for the wood to be delivered. Uh, everything else is in place. And by Katina, those of you that join us for Katina, you should be able to have a very comfortable walk all around the lake. Um, and then also, we don't know, but uh, the cooties may well be uh, in place by then as well. We're, we're hoping. Uh, it's kind of on the verge, actually. And then also, the um, just uh, while we're on the theme, to let you know we have somebody who's coming, uh, who's volunteered, a consultant on these matters, coming to help us look into building an island, a nesting island out on the lake. You would have noticed the two swans that are there today, and I'm sure they'd be even happier swans if they had their own beautiful little island. So I don't think we're going to get a beautiful little island for them this year, but uh, we are getting some, some good advice, and we're looking into how to do something that will really... Uh, serve the uh, the health of the the lake um, and uh, the wildlife that's living under the water and also that that's living above the water and the floating island we we uh, had last year you probably have all seen a kind of a sad sorry looking thing that um, got stripped of most of what was covering it through the winter brutalized by the winter early this year and got swept down the other end of the lake, and we pretty well decided we're just going to leave it there. 
those critters that want to enjoy it can enjoy it for the time being. Um, but hopefully eventually there will be a more substantial um, island on our lake. Um, so moving from environmental matters to uh, internal matters, um, the inner environment, and how we, how we develop this, how we, how we cultivate the inner environment so it's also a beautiful place. Uh, I'm sure many of us have walked through gorgeous parks and enjoyed the, uh, the many possibilities there are for like capability brown uh, beautiful parks that there are around Wellington Hall just north of here and, and Belsay Hall over there and Bolam Lake over there, these gorgeous parks. But you can still be miserable as nobody's business walking through gorgeous parks. So the outer environment is, uh, can be a support and can be um, conducive to working on that which surely is the priority uh, the inner realm. And how do we do that? Well, that's what we're all here for. That's why we're Buddhists. And that's why the Buddha gave his teaching. He, he enjoyed nice parks and, and spoke about it, as did his disciples, most eloquently describing the beauty of, of the environment that they were staying in and, and how conducive a beautiful environment can be. Uh, to formal practice, to cultivating the inner world. And so uh, our work is to receive these teachings and to apply them, surely. As I was walking down to the lake this afternoon, I, uh, you know the, the, the gate that you have to go through, the great big metal gate that you have to go through, and hopefully everybody's remembering to close. Um, just as I was about to go through the gate, I was looking off there to the right, and and there was this great big sheep um, with her head stuck through the, the fence. I think it was a barbed wire fence as well. Kind of really reaching through there, trying to munch on some grass through, through the fence. And, and I stood there looking at her and <clears throat> thinking, you know, those sheep, don't, I don't think they've been in that field for that long. There's that huge whole hillside of grass there. And yet she's got her head stuck through, I think it was a barbed wire fence trying to, you know, how far can you reach out to get this, this grass? And I thought, right, that's, yeah, that's what we do, isn't it? That, that idea of, in fact, somebody quoted it to me recently, the grass is greener on the other side. And how uh, unclever that is, how unclever that attitude, uh, not just for that sheep with her head stuck through the fence, uh, you know, really probably kind of straining and hurting yourself. Um, but, uh, and we've all seen it. You, know, you have a whole massive field of cows and there, there they are at the fence with their heads stuck through the barbed wire kind of trying to munch the grass on the other side. And uh, what is it about us that always feels the grass is greener on the other side? Well, we could, uh, we could psychologize about it and try and come up with some explanation about why we do it. But maybe what's more useful, is, I would suggest, is that we just acknowledge that we do do it, how much we do it, and is it helpful. Yeah. It would be better over there. Yeah. It would be better if this... Yeah. And how, how often this mind state 
comes to us in any in any given day like um down there today at the lake you know it would be better if we had some more aspen trees you know the woodland's just a little bit thin and i'd like a few more aspen trees and it would be better if we had a mallet to to uh to pound the steak in we didn't have a mallet to pound the steak in and it would be better if this weather lasted for another week except it's only going to last i think well maybe that was it yeah, we can easily get into that one, can't we, with the weather? It would be better if, uh, or with people, it would be better if that person didn't speak to me like that, or it would be better if I wasn't like this. Now, the thought itself, we don't need to condemn. Surely we recognize that the capability to imagine things being better is a wonderful thing. It's an aspect of our our superior intelligence as human beings. We can can extrapolate. We, We can say, well, you know, because I have this habit of behaving like this, I keep suffering like that. And it would be better if I could let go of that habit and then the suffering would cease. So the thought itself is not a problem. It's the way we relate to the thought that can be the problem. If we merely have the image of how things could be otherwise, you know, the image comes into the mind of a different version of me, a different version of the world, you know, the world free from, from war, free from poverty, free from uh, injustice. You know, we have that image in our mind. We have the thought of, it would be better if everybody kept the five precepts. It would be better if people considered the, the teachings on karma and rebirth and trusted in the teachings on karma and rebirth, how helpful that would be for the world. So to have that vision, to have those thoughts, doesn't have to be a problem. Where does it become a problem? Where does it become a problem, that thought, to the point where you know you stick your head through a barbed wire fence and hurt yourself with straining over it. Yeah. And the evidence of the problem is that that when we don't get what we want, yeah. it would be better if I didn't behave like that. But then there you go, I behave like that again, and then I get really upset. So it's not the thought or the image of of myself not having bad habits, that's the problem. Yeah. It's the identification, it's, it's the grasping, which of course we've all heard a gazillion number of times. It's the grasping that's the problem. It's the getting lost that's the problem. So as I was saying at the beginning of the meditation, the concept of the past is not a problem. If we didn't have a concept of the past, well, then we wouldn't be able to learn. 
You know, one of the wonderful things about studying history, you know, I'm embarrassed now to realize that as, a, as an adolescent, I didn't appreciate history. Uh, in, in latter years, I've come to realize how valuable it is to, to study history, to see that, oh yeah, when human beings behave like that for a while, well then this is what happens. You know, or, or you study the evolution of, of religion. You can see the evolution of the way Christianity has been over the, the centuries, the way Islam has been over the centuries, the way Buddhism has been over the centuries. You can study this and you can learn from, oh, right, this is what happened. So we can learn from the past. The past doesn't have to be a problem. Thinking about the past doesn't have to be a problem. Yeah. Or the future. Again, the meditation, beginning the meditation, I talked about you know, not getting lost in the future. The future doesn't have to be a problem. You know, again, extrapolating into the future, you know, planning for the future you know, can be useful, can be wonderful. Envisaging the future, having a vision of how I could be, how life could be. But where's the problem? It's getting lost. So getting lost in the future, in the thoughts of the future. We don't even have the future, do we? What do we have of the future right now? What we have is a blip in our wetware, a blip in our brains, just a little creation. The future doesn't exist for us anywhere other than that. Or the past, do we have the past? Whatever's happened in the past, how absolutely incredibly, unbelievably, amazingly wonderful, or how horrendously awful it might have been in the past, right now, what do we have of that? We have this impression. We have an impression of the past. And we have an impression of the possibility of the future. So if we mistake the impression for being anything more than what it is, then we create a problem. And so our aspirations for the future, I would like to be a better person. or I would like my uh, friend to be different from the way they are. I would like the politicians to behave better. Those thoughts can be wonderfully powerful, precious tools. Sometimes I think Buddhists get into the, make the mistake of demonizing thinking. Thinking there's a problem with thinking. Thinking in itself is not a problem. Thinking about the past is not a problem. Thinking about the future is not a problem. But what can be a problem is our relationship to our thinking and and so we need to study this we need to study. otherwise we could end up like sheep with our heads stuck through a barbed wire fence yeah. it could be better if that's a, that could be a wonderful thought or it could be a really really stupid thought depending on how we relate to it and nobody else can tell us whether our relationship is a wise relationship or a foolish relationship the only person who can know is ourselves yeah. We're the and how do we know you know, one of the ways we can know is to listen to what the body is telling us and what is the body telling us when we're, when we're wanting something you say, it would be better if I want yeah. like um, I think I came in and Ajahn Abhinanda was explaining that all the new books have arrived from um, our good friends the Katanyata group in, in Kuala Lumpur and some beautiful publications and and uh, some of them, uh, Bhikkhu Gambira and myself were involved with producing, 
and hours of work, many hours of work, and um, he's particularly fussy about the technology side of things. He can spend hours and hours and hours labouring over unbelievably complex, peculiar technological magic which I know nothing about. And then I can be exceedingly, in his view, fussy about design things, which he doesn't seem to be particularly interested in. And, but either way, both of us put many hours of work into trying to get it to work. And, but is it going to work or not? Is this going to work or not? And so we do our work and eventually we, we redo it, we redo it, we redo it, and eventually say, okay, that's it, boom, that's gone. The high-res, high-resolution PDF file goes off via the cyberspace to Kuala Lumpur, and then, so that's it. And so, okay, so then you can, you're relieved from the agony of wanting it to be perfect. And what is the agony of wanting to be perfect? We can feel it, you can feel it in the body, that, that aching that I want, is, it's not right, it could be. And then I was noticing when it's about to be delivered, this anticipation. Where do you feel anticipation? You can feel it in the body. Of course, it can be all going round to the mind as well, thinking about this, thinking about that. But if we come back to the body, and is the calendar going to work this year? We're doing a new version. We did a new version. We did a desk version um, because the sponsors in Malaysia suggested a desk version. And we did a desk version before, and I liked it, but didn't seem to get the great view reviews, and uh, there wasn't any funding to do it again, so we didn't do it. So now the sponsors have said, could we do a desk version? So... I came up with a desk version design and some people just, oh, don't like that. Oh, that's not going to work. Is it going to work or is it a waste of time and money? I don't know. Anxiety, feel it. This. Now, wanting to have a beautiful calendar that's going to make people beautiful, happy and it's going to sit there and grace their desk for a whole year with these lovely, inspiring verses by Ajahn Chah and these gorgeous photographs from all sorts of good friends, I think wanting that Nothing wrong with that at all. I think that's absolutely suitable. That's fine. I think that's a fine thing to do, to want to make people happy. That sheep, you know, she wants to be happy. That's why she's looking for the the luscious grass. Wanting to be happy is perfectly normal. But if we grasp at that wanting to be happy in the wrong way, you can feel it in the body. You feel it. Where do you feel it? You know, in your in your stomach, in your chest, in your shoulders. And if we're wanting in the wrong way then our wanting creates suffering. If we're wanting in the right way, that is, we're wanting with, with a right perspective, a, 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 an unobstructed relationship with desire, the, the, there's no suffering. Yeah. I've often talked about, you know, for me, the image of desire and fire works very well. The fire, desire is like fire. If it's contained in the, in the fireplace, no problem. That's what it's supposed to be. But if it gets out, or if you stick your hand in, then of course there's a problem. And so desire is like that for us. It would be better if, such and such, yeah, that's fine, but what's our relationship to it? Are we grasping it? Hmm. And so the feelings of wanting, our relationship to it, and the thoughts, the thoughts about how things could be otherwise, to not make the mistake of projecting blame onto the thoughts for our suffering. Many of us here of the generation that would have been been fans of Joni Mitchell, and there's that lovely song, 
both sides now. And uh, I don't remember all the words for it. I'm certainly not going to try singing it for you. But uh, there's a line in there which says, and words got in the way. I don't know. Does anybody remember this? Is anybody, anybody going to sing Joni Mitchell for us? <laughs> and words got in the way. Yeah, I really don't know life at all. And I've been thinking about that. And words got in the way. Now, I'm sure Joni Mitchell is smart enough to know also. It's not the words, actually, that got in the way. Labels for things can be profoundly powerful tools. But how we understand those labels makes a big difference. Words can get in the way if we get lost in the words. Like all forms. Like many times we, we, we talk together, I know, about the place of forms and ritual in, in our practice. And uh, you know, the place of, for instance, a Buddha image. People have been brought up in theistic, well, the Christian religion, they were taught that the, the Buddha image is uh, dangerous and bowing down to graven images. But I think we need to get a little more subtle about what it means to bow down to. You know, bowing down to graven images, surely, where it becomes dangerous is if, if we're giving ourselves over to the form, if we project all our power out to the, onto the form. Yeah. The form itself is not the problem. The form can be a wonderful ins- inspiration. The Buddha himself encouraged certain forms. Didn't encourage the form of the Buddha image, but he did encourage the Bodhi tree and the footprint and the, the wheel and the empty seat, these different forms. You can have these forms there and, and they, you, you gaze upon them and they can lift you up or... A photograph is a form, isn't it? A photograph of your parents. You know, I have a photograph above my bed of my parents, which helps me remember how, how indebted I am to my parents. You know, it's up there in a high place. It's not down on the floor. You know, my parents is up there in a high place because I value them. I'm, I'm very fortunate, my parents, the way they brought me up. And so having the form, having that photograph of my parents or photographs of our teachers, perhaps many of you, have got photographs of, of your teachers uh, in your room or maybe on your shrine. Maybe you have a shrine, and a shrine can be a very skillful form if we relate to it in the right way. If we relate to it as with thoughts about the past or the future, if we relate to it in an uninformed, uninspected, heedless way, well, then we, we grasp at our shrine and, and the shrine becomes too important and, and this is where you know, people can have wars over unfortunately they can fight over forms you know, over religious objects and many of you were well, well, would, probably all of us remember what happened when the Taliban blew up the Bamiyang Buddhas in Afghanistan and thankfully, there was, for the large part, there was a wise response from most Buddhists around the world of, um, you know, feeling sorry for the Taliban, you know, that they would do such a thing. How sad, how unfortunate. I think the only people that got really desperately upset about it were archaeologists, who, in fact, project too much onto the form. You know, they've got too much energy invested in the form. You know. Other people don't, uh, for instance, don't even recognize the spiritual dimension of forms. I was remembering today, actually, somebody, a uh, visitor to the monastery who I received into my, uh, my personal reception room and my, my cottage, and 
I have a shrine there, which um, I pay quite a lot of attention to. There's a very large Buddha image there, standing Burmese-style uh, Buddha image. Various uh, other, there's an image of Ajahn Chah on there, and candles and incense and so on. And, and this person who uh, actually um, been associated with our monasteries for many years uh, came in and, and he looked at it and he said, oh, I see you've got all your bits and pieces from your travel around the world collected together. <laughs> and what he saw was just a bit of whole but lots of bits and pieces, you know, pieces of kitsch, bits of stuff that I collected. Oh, that's when you went to Burma, that's when you went to Thailand, that's when you went to China, and, and just saw a load of stuff. For him, there wasn't actually a shrine. He didn't see a shrine. He just saw a collection of objects d'art. And I was really, uh, really taken aback by that. God, how could, how could anybody not recognise that that's a shrine? And well, it makes you think. You know, for a lot of people, they don't have a shrine in their house. And I know I was brought up. We didn't have shrines. Um, Protestant family. Uh, there was a Roman Catholic family across the road, and they had a, they had a picture of Mary in the garden. And but we just. I remember. I think. If my memory serves me rightly, I asked my mother once about that, and she said, "We don't talk about such things. You know, they're just you know, it's like the, the Roman Catholics and their relationship to form." Well, I don't know enough about the history of Christianity, but I suspect there was part of the division of the Protestants from the Catholics was to do with uh, too much energy had been projected onto forms, rituals, and religious authority, and so perhaps the Protestants went a little bit. Uh, too far the other way, I don't know. But I wasn't brought up with a respectful attitude towards religious forms. Uh, our church we went into was very boring, and not very interesting actually. And, and yet uh, coming across uh, conventional traditional Buddhism in Thailand and then later on in Burma and Sri Lanka and seeing how much joy people get from having a shrine to bow to and then also seeing my teachers, you know, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Tate, and visiting with Ajahn Mahabua, and seeing the way these great beings, these profoundly wise beings that I more than willingly bow down to, I'm glad to bow down to and show respect to and admire tremendously, uh, these people also, the way they relate to shrines, it's been an important part of their life. It's become so natural that whatever degree of purification they've reached, still, they, when they go, get up in the morning, they come into the Dhamma Hall, they bow to the shrine. It's just the first thing they do. It's just you orient your life towards that which is most important by using forms. Hmm. So how do we avoid getting lost in our concepts and in our feelings, in our aspirations? We have these wonderful aspirations for it would be better if... Uh, and so on. These things can be very wholesome, but uh, thoughts about the past and the future we can learn from. How can we avoid getting lost in all of these? Well, one of the important things is to make sure that our life is oriented in the right direction. To really, to really remember we believe and we trust in the possibility of, of unshakable freedom. A quality of peace that cannot be disturbed. We trust in this. This is what liberation is for us. It's not going to a nice place uh, and having eternal sunshine and nice music being played. It's beyond that. It's beyond like and dislike. 
It's the space in which liking and disliking can move freely without any limitation. It's the space of, that is inherently peaceful and cannot be disturbed by anything. It's the, it's the reality that the Buddha and the great teachers have realized. Now, because we've heard about this and it's inspired faith and confidence in our hearts and minds, it's important, I would suggest, that we really remember this. We really make something out of this. You know, even if we, we think of ourselves as Buddhists, and say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in enlightenment, yeah. And then we get around doing it. But we don't make the effort to orient our lives towards the goal. We don't do it. Well, we might sort of believe in, in Dhamma and the Buddha and the Sangha, the Triple Gem. But it may not be serving our aspirations as wonderfully as it possibly could. So I myself have learned to really value ritual practice and having a shrine at whatever stage of practice we might be at to have that special place in the house which you keep clean and uh, and from time to time you offer a beautiful good quality incense and fresh beautiful flowers and you dust it regularly uh, it's kind of sad I know to uh, I've seen this a uh, number of times. You go into somebody's house and you see a shrine that's neglected, that's dirty, and you kind of hmm, pity about that, really. Yeah. Or a shrine that you know, doesn't get any attention. Like uh, in my cottage, I, I've had this shrine in the same place for many years, and recently I um, sensibly, I should have done it years ago, I moved my bedroom out of what was in effect a cupboard into a larger room, and, uh, and now the cupboard is what it should be, a cupboard. It's a good place for, for organizing and storing things. So anyway, in this process of rearranging things, I set up a new shrine in, uh, in my bedroom. But what I found was that um, I was just walking past it. I wasn't treating it like a shrine. It's just a, you know, it's just a thing. There's that Buddha image. It's just another thing that I stop and look at it and say, yes, yeah, beautiful, and yeah, yeah, whatever, and walk past it. Well, I think that's a pity, really, because my aspirations for liberation, my, my love for truth, my, my adoration for, for those beings who have realized truth is not just a whatever. <laughs> it's not just a whatever. It's not just a casual concern. You know, when I'm dying, these are the things that I want to think about. I want to be dwelling on compassion, on kindness, on wisdom, on virtue. I don't want my mind to be caught up in in some dumb movie that I watched or, or some argument I had with somebody. But it's very easy for our mind to get pulled into dumb movies and memories of arguments and disappointments and, and so on if, if our hearts and minds are not really well aligned with that to which we most deeply aspire towards. And so I feel that in orienting our life, uh, staying on, you know, the, the the compass of our life to keep ourselves in the right direction. Atta samapaniti cha says in the in the Mahamangala Sutta, oneself rightly directed. How to get rightly directed? Well, skillful use of of forms of Buddha images, but not just in some place that we're going to walk past it or and ignore it, or it's going to get dusty. Because if we don't 
give it energy, it won't give us energy back. If it's just a casual concern and just something, a pretty piece of kitsch that we picked up on our visit to Asia one year, and we think it's kind of groovy to have one of those things sitting around, well, that that relationship to Buddha images is um, is uh, yeah not 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 very elevated really, and and as a result, probably will not serve that within us, which is potentially elevated. And so uh, remembering this possibility that the thoughts we have about it would be better if this can be wonderful thoughts or they can drag us down. Uh, What makes a difference is our perspective on them. Are we grasping at these thoughts? Are we grasping at these feelings or not? And how do we see that our life stays oriented towards freedom from grasping well, I would suggest skillful use of these forms and rituals can help a lot. So, thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm-hmm.